welcome aboard the battleship pretension i am tyler smith i'm david back and thank you for listening david yes how you doing what are you smiling about well i'm not sure how to express how i'm doing oh okay because i feel like i want to express it with a star but all i have are these hearts it, uh... <laughs> this is not you have not been following the saga of... i have i didn't know we were going to be talking about it i will do you have I have, I, I have conflicting opinions. My first opinion is that having strong opinions about changing changes to Twitter is very sad, and you should probably sure. just move on with your life. Absolutely. On the other hand, I think these hearts are stupid. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Okay. Not because I don't like hearts or whatever. Right. But I feel like changing favorites to likes mm-hmm. and changing the star to a heart, it's like Twitter, it makes Twitter look like they're Facebook and Instagram's little brother, you know? Like, look at us. We're like Facebook and Instagram, too. I see right? it as making things way too personal where it's just like favorite like that. That means something, but like, Oh, but like sounds like a, a more casual personal thing. Well, I honestly and like is like, probably more true to like, just because like I'll be honest in all the years I've been using Twitter when I've hit favorite on something, it wasn't necessarily my favorite tweet. That's fine. That's fine. Fair you know, enough. so but, the like might be a little bit more, uh, but a accurate. star, a star could be seen almost as like an asterisk as opposed to a heart. It's like, I love this. I'm giving you yeah. my heart. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Uh, you know, half ass tweet that gave me a slight chuckle. Right. It seems like you, you and I agree on both counts mm-hmm. that the heart is not great, but being upset about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't heart. I don't like or favorite. I don't like or favorite people being upset about that. I lost track of what you were saying. Let's, I'm sorry. Wait, interest. I lost interest in what you were saying. Okay. Um, I no longer favorite what I'm saying. Oh, fair, <laughs> fair enough. But I do favorite getting gifts from listeners. Okay. And our friend Peter. Now this one's just an envelope, which means it could be filled with anthrax. It could have anthrax. <laughs> it could be not meant for like uh, maybe he didn't intend us to open it on the air. Maybe luckily, I guess that's uh, that's on him for being nice and sending us something. Luckily, we are not live, and we can edit out whatever we damn please. That's true. Okay, so David, what do we got here? Uh, we have the makings of like it's a bunch of clippings. Oh, this is boy. like. This is like when they find John Malkovich's place in In the Line of yeah, Fire. Yeah, no question right? about it. There's just newspaper clippings everywhere. Ugh. Okay, well, the, here's a, a St. Louis Blues pin. I imagine that's for you. Obviously, because um, I'm from St. Louis. <laughs> uh, you do have the blues. Um, that's true. All right. It, and they're just getting darker. Oh, you got what a gift I card. A gift card? To where? $15 to something. Wait a minute. I think I know where this is. It's Denny's. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I came out ahead. Okay. Um, Peter, thank you. This is the same Peter who um, wrote us, sent us a postcard from Missouri and misattributed Missouri as being both of our home states. When That's true. Mine. I lived there for three years and that was it. And I'm so, not from that place. He seems to have written a two and a half page apology. Oh, no, that's not true. But he, oh, okay. he wrote a long thing that obviously I'm not going to read um, because it's very long. And he sent us some newspaper clippings. That's super creepy. I still don't know what they're for. I'm sure that they're referenced in the thing. But uh, the gist of this is that we got a St. Louis Blues pin and a $15 gift card to Denny's. Damn right. This is like the best one we've gotten so far. This is the I best mean, thing we've ever gotten. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Didn't we get? We've gotten like Blu-rays and stuff. You got, That's you true, got a Paddington. But I, I you did just get a, got a Paddington. I you did, just yes. slapped our friend Josh in the face. Josh, I can't pay for pancake puppies with a Paddington. 
much as that would be awesome. But uh, yes, thank you, Peter, so much. I appreciate that. And yes. thank you to and our will... guest for being so patient. And yeah, well, uh, that was, was that worth it? Sure. Why not? Yeah. Okay. 15 bucks. Denny's I'll take it. I mean, was it worth it for the audience, for the listener? Who, you, ca- who cares? <laughs> I, I care oh, a little right. bit. Um, I mean, should I describe the pin? No. Let me um, see. I want to see it. It's just a St. Louis blues. I like mm, it a lot. I'm going to put enough. it on my messenger bag. Fair enough. Um, That's a nice pin. It is a nice pin. All right. And uh, with that, hey, everybody, uh, somebody paid to bring you that. <laughs> and here's who they were. So this episode is sponsored by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent international and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently showing on Mubi are Sympathy for Lady Vengeance and Computer Chess. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, those specifically because Computer Chess is a crazy i can't even begin have you seen computer chess oh yeah yeah it's i it seems like it should be easy to describe but there's so much yeah it more gets, going it does on get strange but it's yeah. a movie about a computer chess tournament in the early 1980s right that was uh filmed entirely on technology that would have been available at yes. the time and it takes place over the course of a weekend. Yeah. There's a great speech about how uh, a man can do anything on three scotches, which is one of my favorite parts <laughs> of the movie. Yeah, it is. It's funny. Uh, it's dramatic. It's strange. It's just a really good movie. And then I, I actually have not seen Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, but I've heard wonderful things about it. Um, and we'll talk more about that movie and other movies like it. Uh, next week, at least a little bit. So, uh, so you can watch these films and many more at Mubi.com. And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. This episode is also sponsored by the Movie Meltdown podcast. Movie Meltdown is a podcast that has that has had scores of great guests to be interviewed. Recently. David, I'm so envious. Recently, they've had Yafet Koto from Alien and Midnight Run and Live and Let Die on the show. And Witless Protection. They're the cable guys. They're the cable, cable guy. You know, They're these the people gave us money. Wit- witless Protection. Let's, they didn't give us money to mention Witless Protection. You're right. No one would ever do that. Although I guess that's the only way anyone would ever talk about it. Uh, they've also... to watch Witless Protection. And you had to write down every, you had to type out every word they said, right? That's true. I got uh, paid to write the English subtitles for witless protagonist, which means you had to watch it several times, right? No, I had to watch the way this would work okay. when I would subtitle a movie is that I would watch it just once, but all the way through would take me two eight hour shifts. That's how long it takes. So imagine watching the movie slowed down to the point where it takes you 16 hours to get through witless protection. I also did that for My Best Friend's Girl, the Dane Cook, Jason Biggs vehicle that no one remembers. Oh, boy. I'm sorry. (laughs) I know it was years ago, but have you gotten over it yet? Obviously not. Witless protection is clearly seared into my memory. (laughs) Yeah, it's not going anywhere. It's dreadful. (laughs) It's really a really bad movie. 
So along with Yafet Koto, uh, Witless Protections Yafet Koto, uh, they've also recently had Greg Nicotero, uh, yeah. makeup artist, producer, director, who's worked on some of the best horror movies and TV shows of the last 30 years, including The Walking Dead, as well as Deadwood. He did makeup for Deadwood, David. Uh, so those are just a couple of the great inter- interviews they've done on the podcast. We'll be telling you about many more over the next several weeks, or you can find out for yourself by going to moviemeltdown.bravesites.com or just by clicking on the ad at battleshippretension.com, which is obviously what we would prefer because it means that you are at our website. So which is where you should always be, which is where you should always be for all of your movie needs yeah. and podcast needs and television needs. And let's not forget survivor needs. Right. Okay. Yes. That's it. All right. Um, our guest has been far more patient than I would have been in his shoes. No question. No question. Yeah. I feel so terrible that, uh, <laughs> that you're just going to keep drawing this out. Why yeah. don't you introduce our guest? All right. I don't know. I don't completely remember where I first uh, saw him. I believe it was, I'm on a, I'm on, I'm part of a Facebook group that uh, talks about silent film. And I think I saw uh, a post about uh, this young man's uh, magazine in there and I became fascinated and we're always looking for interesting guests to have on this show. And so we have with us uh, the editor in chief of silent film quarterly. It is Charles Epting. Charles, how you doing? Good. How are you guys doing? Not bad. Great. Thank so, you both very much for having me on. I'm so sorry for what you had to thank witness. you for enduring our, uh, I don't know. Bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say shenanigans. Shena- that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Fuckery. Go watch. Oh, sure. Protection. Now. Uh, <laughs> you really aren't. <laughs> but the, if you're going to watch it, the only way to watch it is drawn out over 16 hours. With the subtitles I, on. With the subtitles on, so that you could really appreciate what David uh, did for that. Yeah. I think I, I probably was not supposed to say, but I, I don't think the company that even exists anymore. <laughs> That's why I think it's okay that I say what oh, I you worked mean, on when I was there. I mean, they put all their money on witless protection <laughs> and it didn't work out? No, they didn't. No, I, I was like the freelance low on the totem pole guy. Oh, okay. That's why I got stuff like that. Okay. They had yeah, much yeah. better contracts where people got to uh, watch um, good stuff that I very rarely got to touch because I was, yeah. You know what I find? You know what? Actually, we, no, I was about to talk more about Willis protection. We're not doing that. Yeah, we don't need <laughs> when we've got other things to talk about. Charles, thank you for so much. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, we've got to, we've got to, you know, find out who you are, where you're from. We'll start with that. That's always David, where we David, start. You ask. Where are you from? We talked about it off mic. Where are you from? From Huntington Beach, California. So about an hour south of uh, North Hills, where we are right now. All right. Well, <laughs> I don't know. We said where we are right now. Yeah, that's multiple all right. times. Yeah, we've made multiple references to Doctor Hogley Wogley's Tyler Texas Barbecue. That's right. Which and is, we're uh, going to make more before the day is done. Which is the barbecue place right around the corner from here. You guys uh, should should check it out. I say you guys because there is a silent uh, fourth. Uh, Appropriately, person. there is a silent person here. <laughs> that is very appropriate yes. for our uh, our topic. Um, now, uh, I normally ask people who are on the show how they came to be cinephiles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to get even more specific with you. Why specifically silent film? Mm-hmm. Everyone always asks me that cause it's weird. I've, uh, you know, I'm 22 years old and I don't really watch anything but silent films. I sometimes dabble in pre-code, but, but nothing post 33 if I have my way. So, uh, I, growing up, my, I always had an awareness of silent films. My dad would show me bits and pieces of Chaplin and, and Keaton, um, just so that I had an appreciation of them and so that I knew they were out there. But I never thought it would be something that would 
consumed my life the way it has. Um, it wasn't until I just graduated from USC. It wasn't until my freshman year at USC. I was in the library one day, found out they had a great collection of DVDs that you could rent for free. And uh, I was browsing through you know all the classic titles they had. And I decided to uh to give chaplin keaton and lloyd a shot they're the three three you know legends of silent comedy um i saw they had tons of their titles available for for free checkout and i thought what the heck um i'll give it a shot at the very least when my roommates are making a lot of noise and i'm uh you know just trying to take it easy i can watch a silent film on mute um and and not have to worry about you know listening so so it it was it was really practical at the very least. (laughs) it was just something i could put on uh you know in, in my dorm room and I didn't expect much. I thought, you know, maybe I'll get a chuckle out of it. I knew how talented these guys were, um, but I'd never really thought too much about silent film. Um, I've always been fascinated by the 1920s and 30s. I, I'm a history buff, so there was sort of precedent for it, but it wasn't something that I really thought I would latch on to. Um, so the first three movies I started with were uh, The Gold Rush, uh, the general and safety last so mm-hmm. the most famous movie by each of the three most famous actors i wasn't doing anything very deep yet and i was bitten by the bug almost immediately uh in that moment i i decided to sort of throw myself into this and i think it helped being at usc because there is a statue of douglas right. fairbanks and you know because this is like when someone decides to become a monk I feel like. pretty much yeah well no it, it, it was a, and I, I sat down and told my roommates about silent film and, and they, you know, they sort of like stayed in intervention <laughs> I think that is though you were coming out coming out yeah and I tried to get them to watch and they of course thought I was crazy they were ready to you know call my parents and let me know something was wrong because <laughs> who, who decides that they're just going to watch silent films from now on um, but but it was uh, it was something I wanted to immerse myself in into the the stories behind you know not not just watching these films but really learning about the actors learning about the costumes and the set design and the music and everything that went into silent films so it, it went from zero to 60 very quickly i never really had a casual silent film phase um it, it was something that i was bitten by almost immediately and i've stuck with for a number of years now and then just keep throwing myself further and further into it i'm fascinated by uh a number of the things you said but specifically when you said like nothing post 33 if i had it my way right you know you do like no one's yeah, making I, you I, watch. yeah that's well, i guess fine. you were in you were just in school you just graduated it was, I was gonna say, at school i died i'd uh you know i'd always have to watch and, and and there are movies i like after that but but my wheelhouse the, the stuff i really like to focus on and, and study is is that early, really early stuff so um but now but, but in school when they would show you like rashomon you'd be like get this just, newfangled yes. a, a, this, uh, a lot of times i was guilty of writing stuff off um <laughs> before i even knew what it was just because it was so modern get this uh, flash in the pan wells you, and, off of my screen <laughs> well I, I, I got a lot of people labeling me as a hipster for not watching anything with sound in it, let alone color. Or yeah, I, I think say that's the right best, use of that word, though. I, I say this no, in the wait. best possible way. Hipsters wish they could be as unique as you. <laughs> I appreciate And that. I say that in the best possible way. I appreciate way. that very much. Um, I, I, am, I am aghast, but ne- that sounds negative. I'm, I'm, I, I'll use flabbergasted because I like the word. Um, because it, even in the world of film lovers, everybody, you know, they have a genre they like and that sort of thing. Um, and one thing that I wanted to, to specify, and I'm sure we'll dig more into it in a moment, is that silent film is not a genre. No. You it, know, it, it's, 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 a, 
it's a, an, an, an era of film. Ex- exactly. And, just, and, then and that's that, yours. I was going to say that it, it's something that I think a lot about because, you know, people don't realize that the latest silent films are pretty much just talkies without any, you, know, you sort of go through these eras and I think there's more differences between the early silent films and the latest silent films than there are between late silent films and early talkies. Mm-hmm. And I think sort of not, I mean, I just, I outed myself as being called a hipster for liking silent films. Then I got to my really pretentious phase where I only watched pre 1915 silent films. And I only watched, you know, things that were like 42 seconds long. And, uh, and, and, and I, I really tried to, cause I mean, there are amongst people who watch silent films, there are a lot of people who focus on Clara Bow and Metropolis. And they're mm-hmm. sort of the staples that, that are easy. And I, I really wanted to immerse myself even deeper than that. So I just kept going further and further back until there was barely any film to watch. So I just got, I haven't watched it yet, but I just got the Flickr Alley Blu-ray of the 1916 Sherlock Holmes. But you're looking at that with the cocked eyebrow. You're like, that's yeah, too, I'm not sure way, about... Way too late for me. No, no, I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> Easy there, Transformers. Uh, that's not how we do things <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that Flickr Alley put that out. And uh, just to see William Gillette, who people had heard about in his role, you know, because he was on the stage of Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. and then transitioned into films, I think that after hearing about him as the original Sherlock Holmes for so long, it's uh, it's really remarkable that people finally get to see him in that role, and uh, and yeah, I'm thrilled. Uh, Flickr Alley, I think, do fantastic work. I write yeah. for them. Uh, hmm. Full disclosure. Oh, I didn't um, know. I've, I didn't I've, know that I've, 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 I've written I've written for their blog a couple of times, and they've just been uh, the nicest people to work with. So I'm I'm thrilled with that Sherlock Holmes collection. Yeah, they put out awesome stuff. stuff. Yeah, no, I, everything they do. I, even, actually, I'm going to jump back before I discovered. <clears throat> um, the Chaplin Keaton Lloyd films at SC, I had a box set of uh, George Melier films from Flickr Alley that I had bought just sort of randomly. I saw it. I knew, uh, you know, the famous rocket ship crashing right. into the moon scene mm-hmm. that everybody knows. From the Smashing Pumpkins video. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I, so I, I knew that scene. I saw this box set of, you know, dozens and dozens of his films. It was at a Flickr Alley table at a, uh, at a film event. And I bought that and watched some of those before I even got into silent films deeply. So mm-hmm. I like to credit Flickr Alley with helping to spark my, uh, my fascination with silent films as well. Uh, so what, uh, I'm sure you probably get this question a lot too. What is your feeling toward the, the 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 rash a few years ago of the artist taboo blanca nieves like how do you feel about those movies i'm torn and when the artist came out i was of course really excited because that was right when i was starting to Uh be bitten by the bug and i bought tickets for it at uh in hollywood it was playing at one theater and i bought a couple of tickets just thinking i could drag some friends with me you know i'm a freshman i thought this was just what college kids did was go see weird movies that don't have words in them and i ended up eating like three or four of the tickets that i bought because i couldn't i took a bus by myself to go see the artist because i was just so excited and i couldn't drag anyone with me i've gone back and forth on the artist that's obviously the most prominent of the examples you named is part of this silent film revival uh if you can call it that because it seems to have died out already um it really, I, there were those three movies that yeah, i named exactly, that I'm, really ex- sure ex- that I'm not sure that qualifies as a revival but i i like the artist i think it was very earnest i think um i i really respect what they were going for if i'm gonna watch a silent film there are teens and 20 silent films that i much prefer to the artist mm-hmm. um i i don't I wouldn't rank that as one of my favorite silent films by any means, but I am excited that it got people excited all of a sudden mm-hmm. and people started looking back and, and um, obviously going back to Fairbanks, who's more or less the inspiration for that. I feel like it benefited the silent film community. And while it's 
far from perfect in my eyes. I'm glad that it exists at least, um, so that for a short time people were were hyped about silent films. And the fact that the film won a number of Oscars, including stuff like actor, yeah. that's something that I always found fascinating, but for good reasons because right. it gets. It's sort of. It's not like silent film was was delegitimized in the eyes of film nerds and film snobs. Uh, it's more just like, okay, we've seen the re- the requisite ten, yeah. and now let's move on. Exactly. Uh, and then I think this guy. I, I think the artist got people realizing. Oh yeah, there's a lot of a lot of uh, possibilities with silent film, and then the fact that. Um, uh, Jean Dujardin one actor I felt like that emphasized like yeah you can even do wonderful things as a performer without having to like say you know speak audibly absolutely and I feel like I don't know in, in your experience did did the the higher profile that it got as a function of the Oscars like you know it, you I assume you're friends with with film people. Like, did it get them excited to go back? And did they go to you and say, "Hey, you're you are our, our official resource"? You know, <laughs> yes and no. The, the the thing about it is, while it did get people excited about sound films again, a lot of times I felt like they were just going back to those ten requisite sure. films. And um, obviously, the the easy one to go back to is Wings because that's the only other silent film that's ever won Best Picture. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it uh it did help revitalize interest in silent films and help to legitimize it uh, a lot. But at the same time, I feel like people love to almost pay lip service to the silent era and say, yeah, it's great. You know, we've seen Clara Bow, we've seen Charlie Chaplin, but a lot of people still just scratch the surface and never go deeper. And I feel like that's a constant struggle in the silent world is you have sort of two schools of people. You have the Clara Bow and Louise Brooks lovers, which is great, and I I love both those actresses. And then you have the people who only watch the really obscure German, Russian, mm-hmm. Italian silent films. And I feel like sort of bridging that gap between the the surface level fans and the real hardcore fans is tough. And I I wish the artist had done more to help push people a little bit further into silent films and sort well, of go back a little bit deeper into time, maybe. Um, I, this is going to give me, uh, I, I really want to get into some specifics of some of the, you know, sure. you mentioned some general, uh, some countries and eras. I want to get into the specifics of some of your favorite silent films uh, and why, but I also want to go back and talk. And you said, you mentioned the term, the silent film community. Yes. What is that like? <laughs> And by how many decades are you the youngest person in it? <laughs> it it's really interesting, and and I'll sure I'm sure I'll talk about it more later. But I, I recently founded Silent Film Quarterly, which is a, a magazine that was really inspired by the quote unquote silent film community that I discovered online. And I had gone to plenty of screenings around L.A. And there's a place called the Old Town Music Hall in El Segundo. That, I love that place. One of my favorites, and I would go there to see a Keaton movie or see a. Uh, see a Lon Chaney movie or something, but I didn't see any of the same people at any of these screenings. And like you said, I was usually the youngest by half a century, which (laughs) I I had no problem with. I would, uh, you know, last Halloween I saw Nosferatu at the Walt Disney concert. I was going to all these screenings, but I really felt like there was the sense of community was lacking until I oddly enough found the groups on Facebook. And it was through, you know, there's tons of Facebook groups 
some dedicated to specific genres, some to specific actors. And you see sort of these same names pop up time and time again. And then you start realizing who's going to post the cool stuff. And you start really. And I, it was online that I really felt connected to silent film fans, not just around L.A. Now, now I, of course, start recognizing people wherever I go to see a movie. But, they, you know, across the world, there's names you see pop up. And, and it's a really tight knit group. And I feel like we all know how weird we are for liking this stuff and we sort of feel the need to stick together then. Do you feel like, like if you didn't live in Los Angeles, would you even be, I mean, obviously like with Blu-ray and streaming services and stuff, like it's a great time to delve into really any aspect of film, whether it be like really obscure, like giallo horror films or the silent era or whatever. But even without that, like, Seeing something on a big screen, there is something to that. And, you know, if you lived in Denver, Colorado, where I lived, or if you lived in Springfield, Missouri, where I also lived, like, you're kind of SOL when it comes to seeing these movies on a big screen. Absolutely. I'm, I'm totally spoiled and jaded that, you know, any weekend you can go see uh, Big Parade or Nosferatu or whatever and i see people on facebook who you know they live in virginia or pennsylvania somewhere more offbeat and once or twice a year they may get a chance to go see a silent film mm-hmm. and invariably it's either the general or city lights that they get to see they they're, mm-hmm. you know i i think living in la there's so many great venues for silent well, film that show really obscure stuff on the big screen i feel like that's what you miss you know they're, they're all they're gonna be showing chaplin on the big screen for centuries to come, but yeah. getting to see an obscure 1918 William S. Hart film is something that literally doesn't happen anywhere but L.A. Well, that's what I wanted to ask, because, uh, I mean, the examples you were giving were L.A. as big city, big, you know, right. Carlton City versus smaller towns. But is Los Angeles in particular, maybe because the film industry is in love with celebrating itself, that sort of thing, are there more opportunities? Being, you're part of the worldwide community, uh, is is Los Angeles one of the best places to it's see the silent best. film? Abs- it's absolutely the best. You've got so many museums. So many, you've got the Academy. You've got the AFI. So many people working together here. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, just with the TCM Festival, short distance from the San Francisco Silent Film Festival every year. California in general is, I think, the greatest place in the world for seeing these things on the big screen. L.A. in particular, the fact that every weekend you have two or three options mm-hmm. of what to go see, I don't think that happens anywhere else on the planet. Uh, well, b- before we delve into some of like your favorites, um, I did want to ask, so we talked about The Artist, which is a silent film, but then there are also a number of movies, I guess it doesn't happen that often, but there are a number of movies and directors from the last 20, 30 years who will try to emulate the look of, of probably German expressionism. Uh, you know, obviously like Tim Burton, uh, specifically with Batman returns and his, uh, uh, Caligari esque penguin, but then also, um, guy Madden. guy Madden is the one I wanted to say. Have you seen anything by guy, guy Madden? I have not. No. Uh, I would highly recommend it. I think I recently on the podcast described him as a Canadian weirdo. Yeah. Yeah. He is a Canadian weirdo. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But yeah, he makes, I mean, he has made legitimately silent movies. Yeah. uh, And even, and movies like the saddest music in the world from 2002, which is not silent, but uh, that was four. um, I might be wrong on that. Sorry. Maybe it is 2004. Um, Anyway, uh, but that's not a silent movie, but it's very much has the look of one, yeah. you know? Uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend. I would not Madden. suggest starting with twilight of the ice nymphs. He is, uh, 
veering off in a different direction and 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 assaulting use of color uh, as opposed to you know uh, was it careful careful yeah and then um, saddest music in the world yeah um, Dracula pages from a virgin's diary which I never saw where he essentially. Uh, adapted the uh, I think it's the Winnipeg Ballet mm-hmm. the ballet thing like version of Dracula he filmed it like a silent movie but it's still a ballet at the same yeah. time he has a That's fascinating awesome. sensibility and we don't get to talk about him that often we should do a profile of him sometime we should that'd be fun but yes uh, I highly recommend absolutely I, will, I feel like you more I than almost anyone else I know including me and David <laughs> would have an appreciation for him absolutely but um okay um Real quick, I want to tell the listeners about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you get professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors, and they're very stylish and sharp and bright and vibrant, and that also describes the sound that they produce. Uh, Not stylus, but, you know, sharp and bright and vibrant. Uh, And they're already available for a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com, but because you know us and we think you're cool, if you go to tweakedaudio.com and at the end, at checkout, you enter the offer code pretension, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So remember, tweakedaudio.com, offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Okay, Charles. Yes. Now, assuming, I think we can make a pretty good assumption that our listening audience is film savvy. They're not, you don't need to recommend the things you've already mentioned, the general um, safety last, these right. sorts of Which means, sorts of movies. Uh, you're going to be talking for like 45 minutes, basically, because <laughs> cool. we're going to have nothing to say. But what I want to say is, uh, imagine you're talking to someone who has a pretty basic working knowledge of um, classic silent film. The, where should they go from there? Where's the next place they should go? And let, I, let's let's start getting into some specific films and sure, directors. sure, sure. Um, I. I one place I always recommend because I feel like a lot of it's one of those things a lot of people touch on the surface of but never dive into is uh, obviously German expressionism mm-hmm. and it's something where everybody's seen Caligari everyone's seen Nosferatu but a lot of people don't really know where to go from there and I think looking at the interplay between Germany and Hollywood mm-hmm. as the 20s progress is uh, is one of the most interesting areas that is just ripe for research and I had a, a contributor write an article for the next issue of my magazine about a german expressionist film that i'd never heard of Hmm. and she managed to get her hands on a print somehow and it really just sort of opened my eyes because i feel like i've seen uh more german expressionist films than anybody should ever have to endure (laughs) because it it, it, you know it it does get unsettling after a while and i think that's the purpose of that was the intended purpose of these movies but i think it's something that is very often misunderstood and something that a lot of people love to sort of point to to prove that they're silent film savvy mm-hmm. um, when they're really just skimming the surface of everything Germany was producing during a very volatile. I, I think it's even more interesting when you when you sort of look at the 
political and social situation in Germany during that time and sort of see that what on the surface level appears to be one thing might be something totally different. So um, a quick example of that, I was I saw Nosferatu, like I said, at the Walt Disney Concert Hall last Halloween, which is the most entry level German expressionist film I'll talk about. My favorites in a second, but just sort of uh, uh, trying to explain what I mean by going deeper with German expressionism. And based on the crowd's reaction, you would have thought it was a comedy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that happens a lot with silent film that that people can't contextualize it and can't put themselves in the 1920s, obviously. And I'm not expecting everyone to understand the socio political climate of Germany when they're watching. I'm getting mad at that audience right That's now. Probably, I wasn't I, even there. Why, I, why go and see Nosferatu if you're going to react that way? I was, and and there's the scene where the the phantom carriage, uh, you know, where they speed up the film so that it look it's mm-hmm. it was supposed to look creepy back in the 20s, and and today I think people misinterpreted it as sort of a Keystone Cops sort of thing mm. that it's this carriage going really fast, and they thought, oh, this is like funny slapstick. They didn't realize, and. Uh, you know, in Germany around 1919, 2021, not only is there all the inflation, not only is there the social upheaval of the Weimar era, but you've got things like the Spanish influenza. You've got so much unrest amongst the people. And when they made, you know, when, when, when Nosferatu was being made, they weren't just trying to adapt to Bram Stoker's book. It wasn't just let's make a horror movie for the sake of making a horror movie like Universal did in the 30s. That movie was meant to capitalize on and try and describe a lot of the the unrest people were feeling and here all of a sudden you've got you've got disease and pestilence coming into this very financially unstable nation and here's this mysterious foreigner coming to a foreign land and infecting the populace and and causing this upheaval and 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 i think when you look at the dracula character nosferatu is sort of a an analog for what was going on in Germany at the time, it really becomes more than just a horror film. I think a lot of people write that off as just an early example of a horror film. Same with the twist ending at the end of Calgary. Uh, My favorite German expressionist film is one called Waxworks, which is not a very well-known one. And it's a series of three vignettes, each with a different actor, and it's got Emilia Jannings in it. Um, It showcases the greatest German talent at the time. And uh, it's about a gentleman who falls asleep in a wax museum. And he, he wakes up three different times. And uh, one time it's Jack the Ripper and the other it's the, a, a caliphate. And, and he keeps waking up in these historical scenarios. But at the end, it's unveiled that he was just sleeping. And the whole thing was imagined, which that's a trope that's used a lot in comedy. And it's, you know, it's a, sort of a recurring theme in film that you wake mm-hmm. up and the entire thing was fictitious. But when it's that anxiety ridden as the German expressionist silent films are, um, that that's somewhere that I think, uh, a lot of silent film novices can go. And just by watching a, a couple of films, you've got, uh, Der Gollum, which is, uh, mm-hmm. notoriously anti-Semitic, but that was a real social issue in Germany in the twenties. That was something that was going on for better or for worse. Um, and, and I think looking at German expressionism beyond Nosferatu and Caligari, and then beyond Murnau, once he came to Los Angeles and, and everyone knows Sunrise, of course, I think there's a lot of a lot of stepping stones between the films everybody knows and then the German directors like Murnau and, uh, and Borzaghi coming to Hollywood in the late 20s. Um, that period for me is something that is fascinating that I just don't think people dive into enough. You know, it's interesting that you uh, 
So we were talking off mic uh, about uh, episodes of Battleship Pretension that you've listened to, and you mentioned that you listened to the Film Noir episode. And one thing that we mentioned then is that noir tends to be a very, very good entry point into older film in general. And now you're mentioning that that German Expressionism, which of course influenced noir, is a good entry point into silent film. And I'd say it's it's that, and obviously you know Chaplin and Keaton and that sort right. of thing. But um, what is it, in your opinion, what is it about German Expressionism specifically that you that you feel like grabs people and can sort of escort them into the silent era? Well, going back to what you said earlier, when you said silent film is not a genre, mm-hmm. that's entirely right. And I think it's easy to remember the the great American silent films like Chaplin's films, like Keaton's films. But for every one of those, you had a ton of films that were utterly forgettable. Mm-hmm. And I think getting into American silent film is tough because... You, know, you guys were making fun of modern films earlier. There were just as many bad films back then as there were today. And I feel right. like there's this tendency to glorify the silent film era because all we're watching are, are the greats. Right. And f- for, for better or for worse, you know, perhaps fortunately, a lot of the bad stuff is lost. But there is still a lot of that bad stuff that exists that is very difficult to sit through if you're not devoted to this. And I feel like German Expressionism, A... You know, even when I talk about something more obscure like Waxworks or De Gaulle, it's still the cream of the crop of German expressionism. Mm-hmm. It's still not as obscure as you could get if you wanted to. And I, I feel like the fact that it's so visually stimulating, the you know, everyone talks about the art deco sets and the sharp shadows and angles and the you know, the the harsh contrast of the black and white, I feel like it's more accessible than the majority of American silent film simply because it's weirder. And mm-hmm. I think people like watching weird stuff. People like watching Tim Burton movies or yeah. stuff that is just sort of out there visually and stuff that makes you feel uneasy. And I feel like that's why German expressionism tends to get written off as horror because that's the closest thing we can compare it to today. Yeah. We, they, they're, they make us feel uneasy. They make us feel uncomfortable. Therefore, they must just be horror movies. But I think that there's a lot more to it that even subconsciously attracts people more than your generic American romantic comedies of the same period. You know, when these German movies were being made, the stuff being made in America was not, by and large, was not nearly as visually interesting as psychologically interesting. Um, Hollywood was more or less static when the Germans were going through a lot of social upheaval and a lot of trying to convey political and social and moralistic points when Hollywood was still in its infancy, not really doing that so much. So if you're, so I I like the way that, that we have started this, which is you're, you're bringing somebody into the silent era. You're starting with German expressionism. What's next? Then I go back in time. Okay. And and this has really helped me appreciate because it, it, when you think of the classic movies that people start with, Metropolis is from 1927. It and Wings are both from 1927. Um, you know, City Lights is from 31. Modern Times is from 36. Everything tends to be very late silent era or in the case of Chaplin, even post silent era. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the easily accessible ones, easily accessible silent films by and large are from that later era when things weren't too different from talkies. And I feel like to really develop an appreciation of silent film as a continuum, you need to go back 
pre-1920 for sure. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I sort of look at pre-1920 and post-1920 as the two major eras of silent film. And, and obviously, when you go back that far, the two gold standards are Birth of a Nation and Intolerance, mm-hmm. which are sort of required watching if you want to be a silent film buff, but also very tedious to sit through in one sitting, I'll be honest. I love them both. I think they're both works of art. But to devote 180 minutes to a, a interwoven storyline like Intolerance, is it, it, it's not for the faint of heart. I have a question for you. Sure. And this is me just uh, reveling in my own anger. Uh, anger. Um, <laughs> as I'm sure you know, the Directors Guild used to, they have a Lifetime Achievement Award and it used to be called the D.W. Griffith Award. But then, because of Birth of a Nation and it's, you know, it's, there's not flattering portrayals no, in there, to put not. it uh, mildly. Um, but, uh, and so in an attempt to sort of distance themselves from that idea, uh, it became, I think it's just the Lifetime Achievement Award now. It's not named after anybody specifically. Um, that bothers me tremendously. I agree completely. I, th- I, I, I think... Oh, I'm, I'm opposed to both of you guys. I'm all, I'm all for them changing it. Oh, personally. boy. All right. I, I, th- I think... You know, whatever you want to call the award of semantics, I think Griffith's legacy, by and large, has uh, has been unfairly uh, dismissive of what he did. And I think a lot of people, I mean, yeah, Birth of a Nation is racist, and, and frankly, the country was racist back then. Um, that was the, the first movie ever screened in the White House by uh, by President Wilson, and he loved it. And that, that was just how things, the Klan was a political party back then, pretty much. This, this was a different time in America. So I think people who write off D.W. Griffith um, for sort of thinking what a lot of people thought back then um, has really tarnished his legacy when it, it really isn't deserved. I think Griffith, uh, you know, Griffith and DeMille are the two legendary silent film, American silent film directors. And I, I think Griffith, even more than DeMille, helped to define what cinema was. And I, I, don't, I don't think people realize that when these guys were doing what they did, there was no rule book. There was no, you know, today you go to film school or you apprentice under, and, and you sort of know how films are made and everyone puts their own spin on it. But when Griffith was making films, A, when he started, Hollywood didn't even exist. He started as an actor who was begged to direct a film once um, because directors weren't looked favorably upon. The director was dispensable. Um, the actors are what people put prominence on. And, you know, DeMille gets this random shot at directing a, a short film back east, the totally forgettable, not uh, by no means uh, indicative of what he would go on to achieve. But I think he really helped to define the director as an artistic force in the movie industry. And, uh, you know, very soon after, the director became just as important as the actors, and they would advertise mm-hmm. movies solely on the director. So I, I think trying to tarnish Griffith's legacy um, not only ignores the work he did that isn't Birth of a Nation or Intolerance. He directed so many great films that are not controversial in nature. Um, but I also think it, it's just trying to revise a, a period, it's revisionism of a period of American history that you need to come to accept. And, and, and I love Birth of a Nation. It's terribly racist, of course, but I think once you can look past that and look at the, uh, the, the masterful, uh, directing that, that Griffith was able to achieve in 1915, when most films were barely 10 minutes long, he comes out with this three-hour epic. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I don't think history's been kind to Griffith, and I, I hope that starts to change. And do you think... Uh, I, I know hang on this one isn't second. what we're talking about. What was that? This isn't 
Right. I just wonder, so as gotta, far as but changing that that award, I don't think changing the name of the award is about Griffith or not. It's not about trying to tarnish his legacy or anything like that. It's just about respecting the legacy of all the people who were wronged by that sort of thing. It's it's the same sort of argument for um, taking down the Confederate flag. I think the Confederate flag means a lot of things to a lot of people, and I don't think that it's that the aim is to. Uh, hurt people by taking down the Confederate flag. It's just to show respect for all the people who, uh, who for whom that represents an entirely different legacy. And so I'm all for them changing the name of that, that award. And I don't think that we have to um, assume that that is also meant to signal that we should not take D.W. Griffith seriously as an important figure in cinema history. But we should, but it, it to name an award after him uh, is it, it's it's harmful to people, so that's why I, I'm all for changing it. Disagree uh, on a number of levels, and that's not what we're gonna what we're here to talk about. I'm saying that to myself, uh, <laughs> uh, which is why I had to get uh, emphatic. Um, but what, what what I will say is that um, just don't name just don't name anything after anybody. <laughs> like better safe than sorry. I'm sure somewhere there's a Bill Cosby comedy award and we're all regretting it now, aren't we? Yeah. And so just, uh, but no, the actually, oddly enough, the thing that, that gets me more than any kind of, uh, racial thing. And, and the, I think the Confederate flag thing is actually a good, I think that's a good comparison. And along those lines, I think I'm probably more inclined to agree with you, but, um, but I think what gets me is just like, and I'm probably projecting too much on, on this is it's just like, it's safe to discard DW Griffith. I feel like by naming the award after him, it's saying like he deserves to be remembered because of what he did. But then it's just like, well, we we're also not happy with some of the films that he made and, and, and certain attitudes. So because he's old and nobody watches these movies anyway, we're just safe to discard it. Uh, just safe to discard his name. Who's going to fight Who's going to fight this? No one. Because it's D.W. Griffith. Nobody knows his name except us, you know. And so I guess it's just I feel like it's somehow uh, disrespectful. But there are, to there are a lot of people way. who know his name as the guy who made that incredibly racist movie. And that's those are the people I'm saying who as a group are harmed uh, socially by naming an award after him. But I think if you leave, hypothetically, if you left the name, you could almost use it as a teaching moment. Yeah, he did Birth of a Nation, and yeah, 90% of people know him as the guy who did Birth of a Nation. But you watch a film like Way Down East or Broken Blossoms or America, I, I think it could almost be used as a teaching opportunity that, yeah, he made a racist film. Yeah, he tried to make up for it the next year with a less racist film. But then he went on to have, uh, you know, outside of those two films, I think, still one of the greatest careers in Hollywood. It's, we, it's a shame to... to change the name for one film when he has dozens of others worth consideration. And, you know, I feel like this will actually get us into, and I, it, there's a lot more to talk about in this, in this regard, but I think we'll, we'll move on kind of in talking about older Hollywood in general sound or otherwise, you know, David, you and I recently talked about, uh, I forget what, what the title of the episode was, but okay. change, uh, changing themes right, right. or changing, perspectives or something, something like that. Like anyway, that. something like that. Um, and we talked about, you know, you watch some of the, those older movies, uh, you watch, for example, the one that I always go to is Alec Guinness is one of the best actors ever. Mm -hmm. You look at his Fagan in Oliver in David Lean's Oliver twist. We love David lean. We love Alec Guinness, 
oh boy, yeah. that is a tough performance to watch. And then when you go even further back to silent film, you're going to deal with this even more. I'm a fan of Harold Lloyd. I saw a film called Haunted Spooks, and it's pretty rough. Spooks meant uh, any number of things in that context. FBI agents, right? Absolutely. No question about it. Oh, my gosh. Um, and so, uh, you know, I watch that, and I'm just like, this is uncomfortable to watch, and thus it's almost impossible to laugh at. Right. Um, but it's just like, how, you know, how do I respond to that? How do you, cause I'm, you know, I'm sure people have, whether it be in regards to birth of a nation or any number of other movies, I'm sure people say like, Oh, those are racist. And I, I don't think people are, are apt to just dismiss them out of hand as a result. I'm not making that, that claim, but, uh, people would view them as for lack of a better term, a, a word that pops up a lot now is problematic that those movies are problematic and, are they even necessary for us to watch now that we've, as a culture, have moved on so much from certain attitudes? Like, for example, Haunted Spooks is a comedy that is no long you can't laugh at. It's not like you want to laugh at and you're and you're having a hard time. Um, it's it's that I just I can't instinctively find it funny anymore. I'm such a purist when it comes to silent films that I'm cautious to dismiss anything offhand. So even if it's not something that you can laugh at in good conscience, I still will power through it and watch it just because I feel like there's always something you can pull out of it. And, and whether it is just looking at changing uh, social conditions over time or whether, you know, maybe Lloyd performs an athletic stunt that mm-hmm. he, I always look for some silver lining where, yeah, on the surface and yeah, by and large, it's terrible and you can't laugh at it. But, but, uh, Maybe there's some something that I can take out of it that'll help me understand Harold Lloyd's career on a larger scale, mm-hmm. or that'll help me understand race relations on a larger scale. Or I I I, I do get that a lot, and you know when you deal with anything from the teens and twenties, whether it's literature, whether it's music, whether it's film, everything's going to have racist undertones or overt racism. That's just mm-hmm. the nature of the early twentieth century in the U.S. And I again, I always look for some you know not not to gloss over i think it's important to recognize the racism and to address it but at the same time don't let it compromise your view of good art and harold lloyd was not any different than than most human beings in the united states in in 1920 and dw griffith was you know these these weren't radical viewpoints back then so i think when when people just try and dismiss it offhand um we've got a lot more hindsight today than they had in 1920 or 1925 or whatever. And, uh, and, and because of that, I always, I always give it a fair shot and I always watch it all the way through, even if it makes me uncomfortable. Um, I, I, I don't, again, hindsight's 2020. And I think it would be a shame to miss out on something in these films that you might be able to pick up on if you were just to give it a fair shot. And I, I feel like, uh, in the, in the, the class where I watched, uh, haunted spooks is, uh, I seem to recall, I don't know if it was the first film, but it was like one, it was among the first films to actually cast African-American actors instead of white actors in blackface. And so in its own way, racist as it was, right. it's also kind of progressive. Well, on, on a similar note, I was <laughs> crazy. I, I, I had a class at SC and I, I, I showed up early one day and I decided just to sit in on the class that was in there before me. And uh, much to my surprise and delightment, they were watching Broken Blossoms, another D.W. Griffith movie that 
a lot of people point fingers at. And I was excited because I get to watch a silent film. You know, I have like 20 minutes before my class starts and I'm sitting there. And I've, I just watched the movie like a week or so earlier. And, uh, and, and the movie comes to an end and the professor starts lecturing for the last couple minutes about how terrible it is that Griffith would cast a white actor as an Asian. And of course, Yellowface was very prominent in Hollywood in the teens and 20s. And the professor just kept going on and on and on about how horrible it was and how terrible and, and blah, blah, blah. And it really started to bother me because I think Broken Blossoms is one of the greatest films of all time. So uh, it's something I wouldn't normally do after their lecture ended. I went up to her and I said, hey, I'm not in your class. I just happened to wander in because I'm going to be here in a couple minutes. And, uh, and I said, I noticed you were watching Broken Blossoms. And she goes, yeah, how did you know? And I said, well, I'm a big silent film fan, big Lillian Gish fan, and I think everything you were saying was completely wrong. And she was taken aback, and I said, yeah. Professors always love to be told. (laughs) But but since it wasn't my professor, I felt like I wasn't going to hold back. I was just going to go for it. And, uh, and, And I said, yeah, it was a white actor portraying an Asian. But look at how Griffith portrayed the, the Chinese character in the film. They're very sympathetic. They're the hero in the end of the movie. And rather than just a throwaway stereotype, like a lot of silent films portray Asian people as, this is actually a very heroic figure. And, and I, I said, frankly, it would have been strange if D.W. Griffith had cast an Asian person in the role. So why not take the good out of it? Why not say, hey, yeah, it's yellow face. Yeah, it's racist. But at the same time, Griffith was doing a lot more to you know, improve the visibility of Asian Americans than a lot of other directors were at the time. I said, I just don't know why you would focus on being so pessimistic and, and instead not look for the good in the film and look for the good in, in his depiction of an Asian American. And the professor walked out of the classroom without responding to anything I had said. And it, it really bothered me that I feel like there's sort of these... Uh, party line arguments about birth of a nation about broken blossoms about certain silent films where they're dismissed i I don't care if you want to have a discussion about birth of a nation and then at the end of the discussion you know talk about how terrible but but i feel like people don't even give them a fair shot i don't think anybody watches birth of a nation for the first time without hearing how terribly racist it is people aren't given a fair shot to discover that themselves and i think if they were allowed to discover that on their own it might allow them again to look for the good to look at Griffith's uh, incredible it's a masterpiece in my opinion tainted by racism but I think there's enough good in that film that it still stands out as one of the greatest both Birth of a Nation and Broken Blossoms I think are still two of the greatest films of all time racism aside I think there are still ways to like you said Haunted Spooks cast African Americans that's in its own weird way monumental it does uh i am now fascinated at the notion of somebody who watches uh birth of a nation but nobody gives them the heads up like hey by the way it's super racist <laughs> and they walk out being like you know what that, that movie had it figured out <laughs> like that, that movie really spoke to me <laughs> on a deep level i tried well, I, I uh i was in a fraternity at usc and i would wake up early to watch movies on the big screen because i couldn't get the tv any other time of day and i was watching birth of a nation one day and um my fraternity brothers were not pleased to, <laughs> to see that on the big screen. That's all I'll say. Uh, well, let's, uh, let, let's get away from this era. Well, okay. well, can I say one last thing? Oh, you, sure, sure. you, you had asked where to go from German expressionism. And right. I said back in time, and I've proceeded to talk about nothing but birth of a nation. There was a lot more going on in 1915 than one DW Griffith movie. And I feel like looking at those early days of Hollywood, when Hollywood wasn't even, uh, 
Hollywood as we know it today. There were still studios in Santa Barbara, studios in Orange County, studios all around Southern California, and uh, and, and and even a, a huge part of the film industry still back east. And I feel like watching other movies from that time can really help um, understand where movies went to in the twenties. And one example I love, someone I've recently become fascinated with, is a gentleman named John Bunny, who nobody has heard of because he died in nineteen fifteen. Um, he, he was active for a couple of years in the early teens and he's considered the first overweight screen comedian. And I know that's a weird distinction, but he paved the way for, for Oliver Hardy. He paved the way for Fatty Arbuckle. And, and even to this day, when we, when we see an overweight comedian, I think that trope can really be traced back to John Bunny, who, uh, died a very untimely death, but Fatty Arbuckle, I think is very much a direct result of, of, of his passing. And I think it opened up this void for, for early screen comedians. And I think, uh, I, I think just watch, you know, movies weren't funny early on movies were, uh, meant to be surreal or meant to be sort of, you go back to the very early stuff, almost like magic tricks. And John Bunny figured out, I can make people laugh on the screen. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that really helped shed light. Yeah. Everyone knows about Keaton Chaplin and Lloyd, but without John Bunny, who, you know, I think a dozen of his pictures still survive and none of them are more than 10 minutes. Uh, I think without him, the screen comedy wouldn't have been such a major tour de force in the twenties and onward. And I think there's a lot of different places you can go besides birth of a nation in that 1912 to 1918 period that help explain a lot of stuff, you know, a decade down the line. So what well, do you- Oh, oh, go ahead. Just what are the names of some of these John Bunny films people should should look up? I uh, I don't he uh, I don't know the names off the top of my okay. head because the names aren't important. He one of his things was dressing up as a woman uh-huh. was sort of his go to in all of his films. And there was a woman named Flora Finch who he would act with a lot. Um, there's a great documentary that is about to come out on DVD about John Bunny, and that uh, DVD includes seven of his films, I believe. Okay. Right. So, so he, he, his stuff isn't even available. There's one or two shorts on YouTube, um, but but just his demeanor is very funny. He's just this jolly, uh, jolly old guy. Um, and and, and I, I don't think the films matter. I think just watching John Bunny, I don't think the specific films matter. I think just seeing him on the screen is, uh, is funny in and of itself. And there's one shot comes to mind where, uh, he's at a baseball game, and I, I forget what even happens, but he's being pushed around the bases on a stretcher. And that mental image of just this you know, gigantic guy on a stretcher being pushed around third base is, is funny and I think leads directly to a lot of the Keystone Cop stuff, the early Chaplin stuff, the Fatty Arbuckle stuff, that, that sort of transitional period before the big three perfected their craft. So th- that's why I like going back in time is I feel like you can draw a lot of, can you sort of do connect the dots? Well, and, and so you mentioned the big three and I do want to jump into silent comedy a little bit. Um, you know, so there's the big three and I feel like up until recently it was the big two and people had a gen and people could have, they knew there was a guy with glasses hanging off a clock and that was right. basically it. Um, but like, what is it that separate? Why do we remember them, but we don't remember Max Lender or Harry Langdon? Like, what well, is it about those three? Interestingly, when you say the big two, I've actually heard people who are older than me talk about the big four. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I have a cousin who took a film class in college, and the big four were Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd, and Langdon. Mm-hmm. And other people have lumped Charlie Chase in with the big five. Mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, Max Linder died before he could really achieve the artistic heights that I think he was capable of. Langdon 
simply wasn't around long enough. He was he was sort of a flash in the pan no. on the scene for two or three years, and then all of a sudden he's gone. And uh, I, I think I think there's a couple different facets to it. I think obviously uh, the output of of Lloyd and Keaton separates them. I think the fact that they were producing these full length features, you know, year after year after year. And, uh, you know, it's really remarkable when, when you have a Keaton box set and you get so many great features, everyone knows the general, but you get things like the navigator, you get things like the cameraman, you get, you know, there, there's so much out there. I think just how prolific they were is what differentiates them today. You can't name 10 great Harry Langdon films, but I think I can think of one, which is the strong man. And I think a lot of Langdon's uh, I think a lot of interest in Langdon is the fact that Frank Capra directed him early on. Hmm. So I think there's sort of that dual interest there. But um, I, so, so for Keaton and Lloyd, I think it was their prolific output. Um, I think it was the fact that in the case of Lloyd, he preserved all of his films. He, he didn't release them for distribution, which I think hurt his legacy. But uh, the fact that he kept one of everything for himself, you know, there's not much Max Linder to go on. There's not much yeah. Charlie early, early Charlie Ch- Chase stuff to go on. In the case of Chaplin, I think it was his the fact that he took silent comedy to artistic heights. And that's something that none of the others ever did. You know, you, a movie like The General is great or Safety Last is great. But I don't think it's a, an artistic masterpiece the way people look at Chaplin's films. Hmm. And, and, and in terms of the pathos, in terms of the sure. you, you watch the general and it's funny, but you, it ends and you're laughing and that's about it. You watch a movie like City Lights or The Kid. And I, I think Chaplin has this depth to it. Um, Chaplin is by no means my favorite silent comedian. Um, but I think that the the depth of his movies is what has allowed them to linger on so long. Uh, well, uh, this uh, this might get us away from uh, from from silent comedy. This transition is something else I want to talk about. But the th- uh, the thing about the general and Keaton and Keaton in general, um, not just Keaton in the general, but. Um, so you're talking uh, about him in this one film no. and nothing else. Um, whereas, yes, if you're just looking for that sort of um, uh, emotional depth, maybe Charlie Chaplin is uh, the way to go. But from a uh, construction of film, mm-hmm. of, of cinema standpoint, I think Keaton was doing more uh, in terms of framing and editing and stuff. Absolutely. Which kind of gets me into the thing I've been dying to hear you talk about, which is the Soviets. Um, and then those silent films are uh, always my favorite because in in those terms in the terms of the way they look and move even early ones feel like movies that we see today because absolutely and and sometimes even stuff we have even riskier or not risky but just like there's a, a kinetic quality to them where it's just like, uh, even now I feel like we are not doing some of this. I don't know. Am I off base no, when I, I think that? No, I, I agree. And I think that obviously German and Russian film is incredibly different. But I feel like a lot of the, they were sort of free from the restraints of Hollywood. And I think that links them together. That in Hollywood, you, again, you had you know romantic comedies. You know, there's tons of bad romantic comedies today. And there were tons of bad romantic comedies 
back in the silent era, I think that, that both Germany and Russia were free from those constraints. And I think in Russia, it manifested itself in the cinematography. In Germany, it manifested itself in the costuming and set design and makeup. But I, I, I think that they're similar in that they were so radically so radically different from anything else being made and at the same time so free from any kind of preconceptions. There, there was no um, widely accepted standard of, of Russian film. You know, in, in the U.S., you had movies that had been successful 10 years earlier and people were still trying to more or less copy them and trying to capitalize on that same formula. Oh, I'm, glad, I'm glad we got past those ideas, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, exactly. We're still trying to copy them today, but I feel like, uh, I feel like overseas there was a lot more freedom um if that's the right word to use um but but just a lot less constraint and a lot again a lot less uh preconceived notions about what was okay to do because they were sort of figuring out as they went in certain ways there's more freedom but in other ways there was less freedom because they were uh, you know specifically directed you know to use uh films as propaganda and they were supposed to get across certain viewpoints sort of like how uh China's Chinese film is today in some ways. No. Exactly, but but I, but I, I, I when I say freedom, I mean free from the imposed standards of Hollywood, right? The, and, and the aesthetics and exactly. Yeah. You you didn't have a legacy of film, you know, telling audiences what to expect. You could mm-hmm. sort of play fast and loose. So, um, I, I didn't. I don't know how we jump from silent comedians to Russia all of a sudden. Because I wanted because, no, no, because no, Buster I'm, Keaton I'm and editing right made yeah. me think of Eisenstein. Yeah, Absol- absolutely. And and when I when I when I uh, talk about Chaplin's artistic value, that I don't mean that in terms of pure art. I think it's sort of a con- conception people have that Chaplin is more of a pure artist, and he made so few films, and he was so. Mm-hmm. Uh, crazy for lack of a better word i mean (laughs) in the first issue of my magazine i reprinted uh, an article that his first wife wrote that hadn't seen the light of day uh since she wrote it and he sounds just like a madman how he would leave the house at 3 a.m to take these late night walks and everything and i think that uh whether you know I, i think a lot of people would read that and hear these stories about how crazy chaplin was and sort of assume that he was a brilliant artist solely going off of that um keaton i I think is a lot more subtle in his genius and um obviously not physically but in terms of editing and and the construction of the films um and i agree that there are parallels with with guys like eisenstein it is it is so david and i are big on top of being big film nerds we're big comedy nerds and there is a thing that has persisted i think from chaplin to now which is a film comedy is only like legitimate as an art form if you inject some drama in there or some some uh, pathos or whatever. And I feel like that's, I agree with you. I feel like Chaplin put that in there and you know, when it works, it's city lights is amazing. It's hard to beat, but, uh, Part of me just feels like, oh, that's a dirty trick. Well, and, <laughs> like and, and, you're trying to you're trying to trick people into thinking you're better than well, this Keaton guy. Two quick things on that. One, I forget who said it, but I read somewhere that if Charlie Chaplin is the equivalent of Woody Allen, and someone like a Fatty Arbuckle is a, a Ben Stiller type, uh-huh. and I think that really helps to contextualize silent film that. They're sort of all thrown together. Chaplin, Keaton, Lloyd, Arbuckle, Langdon, both. But there were distinct differences. And I think you're right that that, that pathos, that sadness in a lot of Chaplin films was 
uh, is what has contributed to his longevity. Um, at the same time, I think that has hurt Chaplin. In the, you know, like I said, you buy a Keaton box set and you get so many great Keaton films. Chaplin in the 1920s, he made The Gold Rush, he made The Circus, and he made The Kid. And he had, you know, movies that he wasn't in that he had a hand in, obviously. But but in terms of Chaplin starring vehicles, you've got three during the 1920s versus Lloyd, who was cranking them out every, you know, eight months. And Keaton, yeah. who was just movie after movie after movie. I think Chaplin in the 30s, you have two more. So you really have five great silent comedies from Chaplin. Forgetting the early shorts, forgetting the mutual and SNA and, and Keystone stuff. Uh, I don't think five silent classics is that great of a legacy when you compare nothing against Chaplin. He's a genius, obviously, but I, I don't think a lot of people realize just how sparse his output was. And I don't think people in the 1920s really cared that much about the path. I mean, there's a reason Harold Lloyd grossed more than either Keaton or Chaplin at a certain point because people just wanted to laugh and they wanted to go to the movies as frequently as possible. And, you know, if they had to wait five years for the next Chaplin film, they weren't going to understand that he was an artist at work and sort of a a, a mad scientist with it. I think people just wanted to go to the movies. So I, I think that artistic value of Chaplin's work is both a blessing and a curse. And I think the fact that he made so few films uh, doesn't bode well, at least in my reappraisal of his career. And I think there's other people who would agree. Although here's, well, not although it's so one day when we finally get around to profiling Harold Lloyd, which I've been wanting to do for years, and we obviously have you back for that. Uh, yes, I'm sure you could say no, but that doesn't matter. <laughs> full disclosure, Lloyd is my favorite silent film actor uh, of all time. I, I took a silent comedy class, which is how I'm familiar with Langdon at all or Max Lender or any of these other guys. But like... Um, but the big thing I got out of that, it's like I already I had seen some Keaton. I saw more of it. And then that's when I realized, like, oh, he he might be the best filmmaker of the bunch. Right. Um, and I'd seen plenty of Chaplin as well. Um, but then when I saw Lloyd and I was like, this is really something special. Why don't more people know about this? And at the time, his family wasn't really really like the DVD no, set. The that, Criterion movies that, that, hadn't been released. That is that is. um that is sort of the the bane of a lot of Lloyd fans' yeah. existence is the fact that, you know, Hal Roach was putting all of his stuff out in the 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s. Chaplin was re-releasing it. Keaton was, they were recutting it for TV. Lloyd had this thing where he didn't want his movies to be chopped up for commercial breaks. Right. He thought that you had to sit and watch a movie from end to end or it wasn't worth watching. So Lloyd kind of shot himself in the foot towards the end of his life. And by staying so true to his art, ensured that a lot of people who might be fans of his would never be exposed to him. And a lot of Lloyd scholars debate, you know, was it smart for him to be so uncompromising or could he have experienced a lot long, you know, a lot more longevity had he just sort of played the game and, and released everything. And it's easy. It's easy for me to say like, well, no, he should. It's like he made the the right choice because I live in an era when I have a number of his movies on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, but no, the, the thing that I wanted to mention is that, so one of the papers that I wrote in that class was comparing the pathos of Lloyd to the pathos of Chaplin and that people think of Chaplin as like just so big and emotive, which, which he certainly was, but that Lloyd's was infinitely more relatable. 
Um, and I thought that that was something that like people don't think about with him, but like when he's crying and girl shy, like I'm actually crying with him as opposed to, I think the only time I've like gotten emotional from a Chaplin film, I mean, again, city lights is pretty amazing, but like it's hard not to cry when he's hugging and crying the kid absolutely you know jackie coogan yep Um, and i still get choked up during modern times every time i see it that final scene with smile is yeah i I, it still gets me i agree with everything you say about harold lloyd and the reason he's my favorite of not just the silent comedians but the silent actors and i wish my favorite was someone more obscure but i just can't uh can't resist the appeal of lloyd I feel like today, just like in the 1920s, you will never meet anyone who's like Charlie Chaplin. He's a caricature. No. And you'll never meet anyone like Buster Keaton. He's a totally, you know, the polar opposite caricature. Everyone sees a little bit of themselves in Harold Lloyd. Mm-hmm. And, and some people see a lot of themselves in Harold Lloyd because he was the embodiment of the 1920s spirit. And there's so much uh, renewed interest and, and attention put on the 20s. It's, you know, the most, arguably the most celebrated decade of the 20th century and and lloyd embodies everything people love about the 20s he is the go-getter mm-hmm. he has this candid you know even, even when all the odds are stacked against him even when you know he, he's he's totally in trouble he, he never really lets up he's always positive he's always you know resourceful and I, I i think that that's and when you talk about the pathos of lloyd uh it wasn't until i saw girl shy and the freshman mm-hmm. that i realized just how brilliant he was i i i'll safety safety last is probably a better film objectively but i've always pref- i've always preferred the freshman i think it's amazing i th- freshman is at times my favorite silent film i think girl shy is uh just as masterful i think speedy mm-hmm. is uh very very underrated um we're finally getting a criterion release if i'm not mistaken yeah, yeah. um but but no i i, I agree and I, I think the fact that lloyd is so relatable so normal you know he, he even mm-hmm. looks more no, yeah. you know he, chaplin's costume is obviously very affected and, and keaton's stone great stone you don't know people like that in real life lloyd though he's everyone and, you know, whether you're racing to get the girl or whether you just can't get a seat on a, a trolley car, you know, everyone has gone through what Harold Lloyd has to go through in every film. Yeah. And for me, that makes his films most relatable, most impactful. And uh, and yeah, I, I just can't get enough of Harold Lloyd. Well, I want to steer towards wrapping up here. Sure. We've been going for, 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 a, for a good long time. But I, um, you know, you, you mentioned we were talking about German Expressionism. You mentioned, you mentioned Waxworks. You've turned us on to the works of John Bunny. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, I mentioned Russians. I know way early at the beginning of the episode, you talked about Italian silent films. What are some things that people should look for that might be available but aren't that well known uh, in, in, in places, even in Hollywood, but also Russia and Italy and Germany and anywhere else? There's a lot. And, and uh, you know, I, I talked about going uh, obscure with the early stuff and obscure with the foreign stuff. My interest lately has been uh, really the, the more forgotten films of Hollywood in the mm-hmm. 20s. And I, like I said earlier, that's what I tried to stay away from at the beginning because I feel like a lot of people know Louise Brooks or Colleen Moore or, uh, or, or Clara Bow. But I think there's a lot more... Uh, a lot more research to be done there. And I think that, um, you know, people like Olive Thomas and people, uh, people like, um, Blanche Sweet, I'm working on a biography right now of BB Daniels, who was Harold Lloyd's leading lady. I think that there's a lot of actresses that are unduly forgotten who are no less talented 
than the the actors and actresses who are still celebrated today and and going back really far to the community i was talking about you go on facebook a lot and people will just share you know a sexy photo of clara bow <laughs> and everyone will just rave over oh my god she was so sexy blah blah, blah. but i i feel like uh the, the focus that's placed on so few actors, you know, I, I wanted to be obscure. I wanted to be, for lack of a better word, a hipster. So that's why I went back to the teens. That's why I went to Germany and Russia. And I was trying to find the more and more obscure stuff. But I, I really realized as I got into it that the most obscure stuff has been right under my nose the whole time. And it's the stuff that was being produced by Paramount, by First National, during the 20s in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it's obscure not because it's unavailable, not because it's... Um, not because it's bad particularly, but because people aren't looking for it because they're distracted by the, the cream of the crop. They're distracted by Valentino and Fairbanks and they forget about people like Richard Arlen or they forget about, you know, like I said, uh, Olive Thomas or Blanche Sweeter or BB Daniels. And I feel like, um, there, there's a lot of, a lot of great films made in Hollywood during the twenties that, that just get overshadowed by, by the big ones that everyone has to watch when they get into silent films. All right. You know what? It's like, we need to end, but I feel like we could talk for like at least uh, nine more hours. (laughs) Well, this is, uh, hopefully this is not the last time the show is good. Absolutely. I I hope not. And uh, if I can just mention really quick, silent film quarterly magazine. Oh, Oh, we will give you, Ample time okay. for all your plugs. And we are, we, uh, so Charles is nice enough to bring us three issues, one for you, one for me, and one for a listener. So I'm trying, it's been a while since we've done any kind of giveaway. Do you okay. remember how we do these? Uh, no, I mean, uh, do we do, I have no idea. We should we do a how trivia, about this? trivia question? Oh, oh, hang on. Like a silent film trivia question? Yeah, I mean, we should maybe, maybe Charles could come but up. People can always just look that stuff up. Yeah, but it's whoever looks it up first. Fair enough. All right. <laughs> and then if, and if a bunch, yeah, okay. The first person, okay, Charles, it's on you. You got to come up with a trivia question right now. Uh, well, here, you do that while, while I do our plugs real quick, Indeed. which is we're at battleshipretention.com. That's where you can find all of our movie reviews and links to this podcast and other podcasts in the BP fleet and all the other non-movie review stuff uh, that I write, such as uh, a reminder I wrote today that trailer, a good trailer doesn't mean a good movie. Um, Listeners, David has been uh, writing a lot of non-reviews that deserve to be read. Eh. They're very good. I they're appreci- actually not very good. I think I'm, they're... I th- I'm trying to teach myself how to write non reviews and i'm not entirely happy with all of them i appreciate uh, i like the point of view and i like the instinct to write them well done okay thank you uh that's at battleshipretention.com you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com i am on twitter at davy pretension tyler is on twitter at tyler pretension your other podcasts one called one's called more than one lesson that's right and this week we talk about uh that film that i mentioned uh woodlawn it's a christian film about football it's not doing very well at all which is unfortunate because in the world of christian film it's way better than the other ones uh it's nowhere it's nowhere near my bottom 10 of the year that's That's something that's a big win and then Uh, you also have a podcast called worth playing for which is about survivor that's right and this we never have guests but this week we have uh reed kelly who is on season 29 uh survivor san juan del sur so that was a lot of fun 
delightful. My other podcast is about television. It's called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. This week we're in reruns. So, um, really, yeah, yeah we. Uh, I was. It's AFI Fest this weekend, and I was oh, telling right. Paul like I don't know if I have time to record, and he was like, "Let's just replay the one where we make all the predictions of what's going to be good in the fall movie, the fall TV season, and see how stupid we sound." I'll fill so in for you any. Hear us. Be, so listen to me and Paul. Be hopeful about Doctor Ken and laugh and laugh and laugh. Uh, so that's us. Okay, Charles, what do you got? I've got us? a question. Okay. It's an obscure one. I don't know how easily people will be able to just look it up. That's, oh, boy. that's fun. But I'm going to go back to Mr. John Bunny. Well, someone blog. needs to win so we can send them this uh, this magazine. That, I know the, the information is out there, okay. I believe. Um, which president did John Bunny portray in a film? Okay. Oh, that's exciting. That's a good one. That's a good one. And that was, right. It's something I didn't know until very recently, so I think, it, uh, I think it'll be interesting to people. Okay, so, so if you email me. Email, okay, email Tyler at com. your answer to which president did John Bunny portray. Uh, and if you get it right, you will get your very own issue of the Silent Film Quarterly, Volume 1, Issue 2. Right? Yes, okay. very exciting. Uh, okay. Now, your plugs. Where can people find Silent Film yes. Quarterly? Where can people find you? Silent Film Quarterly is uh, available at silentfilmquarterly.com. Annual subscriptions uh, beginning at $15 if you live in the U.S. Um, there's also a Facebook page, Silent Film Quarterly. Um, I'm on Facebook, uh, Charles Epting, and I'm a very active member of Silent Film Facebook group. So uh, if you ever want to just reach out and talk silent films, uh, look up either Silent Film Quarterly or myself personally. Um, it, second issue is out as of next week. And uh, and then the next one will be in the spring. So uh, it just started uh, last issue was a couple months ago. So it, it's still in its infancy, um, still uh, trying to sort of figure out how to run a magazine, which has been fun. And, and uh, the success that I've experienced thus far has been unbelievably overwhelming. So that's that's all i have to say about silent film quarterly <laughs> well this has been a blast thank you so much thank you both this is fantastic and, and i agree that you can always talk about silent films for hours and hours more so thank you yeah. for cutting me off before i got too boring <laughs> <laughs> so thank you thank you at home for listening and we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 